Well, I too want to welcome you to Cornerstone. Glad that you are here today. Glad that I'm here today. We have some of our families uh, on vacation and hope you're going to get away some this summer. Uh, But I'm glad that we are all here. Now, uh, I know a friend is a good friend when they're honest to you. And so I won't mention who it was, but someone said to me this morning, you look really tired. And uh, so the good side of that is that they're being honest and telling you, uh, telling you how you look. And I am a little bit tired. Our family is. We've had about, I don't know, I didn't count them. We've had about, what, 15 people staying at our house the last couple nights, uh, in addition to our family. So about 20 of us at our home, three tents on the lawn. And uh, I'll tell you a little funny story. This, again, I'm already off my manuscript, but uh, it could be a long, long morning. So I turned the sprinklers off, right? Because there, there are three tents on the front lawn. So I turned the sprinklers off. I hit off. Now, the way I hit off is our sprinklers are on the same circuit as the, the little GCFI button thing. And so I just, hit, I just hit off, and they go off. But normally, there aren't, like, women using curling irons at our downstairs sink who hit that button back on <laughs> yesterday. So this morning, yes, at, like, 6 a.m., the tents, one of which had no fly on it, water just coming in, and chaos in the house, and babies and kids up, and so anyway, we've had people at our house because of a wedding. We had a beautiful wedding last night. This is our family's fourth wedding of the summer. Only one I've officiated, but four weddings we've been to, and my nephew Brian was married uh, last night uh, in Apple Hill. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful evening, beautiful wedding, the way it should be. Um, you know, paint a picture for you, the, the oak trees and pine trees, the outdoor wedding, about an acre of irrigated lawn with a, a pond, almost a lake behind them. The sun is setting. And the most memorable part, of course, is, is my nephew Brian is standing there up front uh, waiting to see his bride for the first time that day in her dress, and they had arranged, they they built like a door frame in the middle of this uh, area, and she's on the back side of that door in this irrigated thing. The door's open, and he he sees her, and it just, the the whole night was just their their love and and radiance, and and as I have grown in the Lord, uh, I was not only thinking about Brian and Megan last night and their love for one another, but I was thinking about Ephesians 5, which teaches us that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Christ uh, Christ is the uh, bridegroom and the church is the bride. And he loves us with that same kind of affection and devotion that, that we saw a glimpse of in Brian last night. And all of our marriages are designed for husbands to love their wives with that kind of sacrificial and dying devotion that shows and displays how much Christ loves us. So it was a beautiful night, and it's been crazy around our house. So if I'm looking a little, uh, little uh, fuzzy up here today, uh, that's why. It's, it's, it's wedding season. It's not only wedding season. It's also World Cup season. Any, any soccer fans here today? Anyone? You know, football is our main thing, but uh, for the planet, today is uh, the final of the World Cup. And as a, um, as, a, 
as a basketball coach and a soccer coach, I have to tell you, I have much prefer, I much prefer basketball. I much prefer basketball. Let me tell you why I prefer basketball as a coach. All right, I'm getting some pushback here. That's okay. That's all right. The reason I prefer basketball as a coach is I've had the privilege of coaching both my son's basketball team for many years and my daughter's team for one year, soccer team. As a soccer coach, when things are going bad out on the field, you cannot call timeout and gather everyone around and regroup your team and give them instructions and give them direction and, and have them go. And so during soccer games, I'm just on the side just like going crazy. Like I want to call a timeout and bring these girls over here, give them some encouragement, give them some direction and, and send them on their way. And as we uh, are journeying through uh, the book of Exodus today, as we continue our journey through this book, God has essentially a call to time out. Uh, it's not a 30-second time out. It's a major time out. The, he, has, he has rescued the Israelites out of their bondage, uh, out of Egypt. He's brought them uh, into the desert in Sinai. Uh, we saw last week uh, this, this timeout is called with thunder and lightning, and it's even referred to again here in chapter 20, the passage that Joe has just read. He, he's wanting to get their attention. He, he, he's called a timeout because he's about to deliver the law to them. He's about to give them their directions for life. You see, our God, he is, uh, he's much more than a lifeguard. We spend, our family spends a lot of time at the beach. We love to be at the beach. And over the years uh, at the ocean, we've seen lifeguards go in and rescue people with this amazing ability to swim through that surf. But once they get those, those, the person they're rescuing back to shore, their job is done. The, 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 there's nothing continuing. But for our God, he wants more than to rescue us from bondage and slavery. He, he wants to get us more than, than just saved. He wants to show us how to live. That's true for the Israelites, and that's true for us uh, as well. And so this law is a good thing, and it should bring to those Israelites who obey it peace, not only with God and with one another, but peace inside here, shalom inside here. So today we're going to look at just this first commandment. Adam and I are going to be tag-teaming over the next... Uh, the next weeks through these uh, commandments. We're going to look at just the first commandment today. It is foundational. It's the starting point uh, for these commandments, and it's as relevant to our lives today as it was to the Israelites uh, 3,500 years ago. Let's pray once again before we get into uh, God's Word. Father, we do give you praise again. I pray, Lord, that every one of us here would know uh, how much you love us, how much you love those Israelites, how much you love us believers today, and that you have given us your word so that we would have guidance, so that we would have peace, so that we would be able to bring glory to you and to be worshipers of Jesus. We ask, I ask that you would speak beyond a level of anything that I could have prepared for today. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives and hearts of each one of us here, and that you would do your work, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20 uh, is where we are. You should already be turned there. And I've got my glasses on so I can actually see my Bible. 
those of you that are new, I'm going through this phase where I have to use these things, and I'm not used to, uh, not used to using them. So Exodus chapter 20, uh, let me just read again verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment here in the text is verse 3. And a little background before we work our way through each of these three verses. Uh, Verse 3 is the first commandment, but there's been a little bit of confusion throughout church history about how to number these commandments. So if you grew up in a Roman Catholic or in the Lutheran tradition, their, uh, their number one commandment is our number one and two commandment. And, and our 10th commandment, coveting, they divide into 9 and 10 commandments. So it's the same commandments, same Bible, same scripture. But throughout church history, there's been a little uh, confusion about how to actually divide them. They're not divided here. Uh, the versifications and so forth came late. So we're looking at this first commandment and a couple things, again, by way of background. Uh, these are referred to the 10 commandments in Exodus 34. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll notice here in these Ten Commandments that there uh, there is an absence of penalties. Uh, There are no penalties, which we're going to see penalties later as we move through Exodus and see all kinds of laws in the first five books that God has given to his people that have penalties. So we're going to get into what we could call the penal code, if you will, where here's exactly what you need to do, Israel. Here are your laws. You are a nation. God is the king. They were living in a theocracy. And so we're going to get into those laws. But what we have here in the Ten Commandments are really the foundation, the precursor, the, um, the, the charter, if you will, of their constitution as a nation. We have the core of what he is expecting. So all that by way of introduction, let's take a look now at verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words. Uh, The first thing I want us to really notice uh, here uh, in verse 1 is that God is a communicator. God is a communicator. He has communicated these words. He has communicated the entire Bible to us. He has given us what we need to know Our directions, his will, is primarily revealed to us right here in the scriptures. He spoke these words. He spoke them, uh, and yet Moses wrote them down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we are so uh, privileged to have, to live in a time where we have the word of God. So God is a communicator. And I want us to just reflect on that for a moment you know, one of the most common questions that we ask one another is, uh, how are you? Most of us probably know how to say, how are you, in multiple languages, even. Anybody? Anybody know, uh, how are you, in multiple languages? We, we know how to ask the question, how are you? But we're not quite as good at answering that question. Uh, have you noticed that? I mean, I'll say, how are you, sometimes, to somebody on a mountain biking. They're on their way down. I'm on my way, they're running down the mountain, I'm riding up the mountain, and I'll say, hey, how's it going, or, or how are you? I mean, we don't even answer uh, the question uh, in passing, and even if we're having a conversation with someone, we often don't answer that question. I want to suggest to you today that how we're doing 
has a lot to do with the words that God has spoken and to the extent that those words are penetrating our minds and hearts and souls. How are we doing? If we are close to God and if his word is reigning in our minds and in our hearts and in our beings, we are doing well. We are doing well, regardless of our physical circumstances. I'll tell you, as a pastor, someone who has visited people uh, who are very sick, their bodies ravaged, near death. Uh, I've visited many, many people over the years in that situation. One of the most encouraging things, I mean, I just, I walk out of hospitals and, and nursing homes and homes and all kinds of places so blessed because even though I don't ask that question, we don't ask that, that question in that setting, how are you? Um, but when I see a believer who's near death, their body is ravaged, but they are close to the Lord. They are close to God's word. They maybe can't even read anymore, but they are going over hymns and scripture that they've memorized, and their hearts are full of joy and contentment. It is one of the most encouraging things for me as a pastor to see someone in that situation. Maybe you've seen someone in that situation. They, they just have every reason to complain, to be upset, to be ravished. And yet, how are they doing? They're doing really well in their soul because they are close to the Lord and they know his will for their lives. So God is a communicator. And he's spoken these words out of love to give the Israelites and to give us uh, his will for how we should live. And so the metric, to the answer to that question, how are you doing, that we know how to ask so well but not answer, is really related to how well God's word is in our hearts and minds and how close we are, uh, how close we are to him. I heard a story of uh, two guys, uh, brothers, that traveled to their father's uh, property here in the foothills. And on the uh, property there, there was a mandarin tree uh, next to a stream that just produced tons and tons of fruit, really, really good fruit. And those brothers would journey out there, and they would gather as much fruit as they could, and they would bring that uh, back home. One of those brothers uh, got smart uh, one day, and he dug up the tree, and he brought the tree home and replanted the tree, and the tree thrived. And he's got this mandarin tree next to his home producing fruit year-round. And you and I need to think of the word of God as like that mandarin tree that we bring home, we bring into our hearts and minds and souls day in and day out. It is important to come to church. It is important to hear the word of God preached each week. But we need the word of God coming into our lives constantly do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth the bible says it needs to be in our souls so that it's not departing from us at any time god is a communicator uh verse one let's take a look uh take a look at verse two it says uh, i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery Uh, we notice here uh, in verse two that god is a liberator God is a liberator. He's a communicator, and he is a liberator. You know, uh, one of the ways that we sometimes talk about the law of Moses in the church is that it didn't work 
didn't work. And so Christ came. Have you heard that? You know, the law came and, and it wasn't able to save and, and so on. And so, and so Jesus came. And of course, Jesus did come and there, there's, an, there's an element to truth. In, there's an element of that. Uh, but but look, look at what's happened here uh, in verse 2. He was reminding these Israelites that he has already saved them. He has already brought them out of their bondage, out of their slavery, and now he's about to give them the law. It wasn't deficiencies in the law or badness about the law that Christ had to come. This was all part of God's plan. And this law is good, and it is there to show them uh, how to live. God is a communicator. Uh, God is a liberator. Let's take a look at, uh, at verse 3, the, uh, the first commandment. It says here, you shall have no other gods before me. None. No other gods. Uh, no gods um, before me, around me, above me, beneath me. Uh, not anywhere. And of course, the first thing we have to do when we read this first commandment is, is, is talk about what this word gods mean. Well, uh, most, uh, probably none of us here are tempted to worship Baal or Allah or, or, or some other God. And so when we read this word gods here, we have to recognize that he's not only referring to false gods like Allah or Baal or whomever, the, these uh, polytheistic culture that the Israelites were living in. He's not only referring to that, but he's referring to anything, anything that you or I are excessively attached to in the place of Jesus Christ functions as a God or as an idol in our lives. And he will not have anything around him, beside him, before him. He alone is worthy of our, of, of, of our worship and of receiving glory from us. Uh, we see here in verse 3 that God is a lawgiver. God is a lawgiver. So, a couple uh, comments uh, from uh, saints from the past here. Origen writes this, he says, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Uh, what do you admire and love? Uh, what, what are you really after? Anything that, 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 that rivals him is, is, is what we're ref- what's being referred to here in the, this first foundational commandment. Uh, one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, he says, to trust in anything more than God is to make it. A God. So we uh, we often don't worship uh, or have a temptation to worship these false gods, so-called false gods like Baal, like the uh, ancient Israelites and other peoples around Israel did. Here's a little statue of Baal, the Canaanite god of thunderstorms, fertility, and agriculture. Anybody, anybody tempted to look at Baal uh, this morning or look to him? No, we're, we're, we're not. They were, I think, not so much because of Baal, but because they wanted rain and they want crops and they want kids. And rumor had it is this is the way that you get those things from this so-called God. And so there's a temptation to go there. Again, it's interesting, in the culture of the church, uh, I, I've often heard and thought myself, well, we've kind of advanced beyond that, and we don't do that sort of thing anymore, and we can kind of look down on their idolatry, and, and in a sense, 
look up at our own kinds of idolatry. But I, I really have a different perspective on it. I mean, in some ways, their idolatry has integrity. They're, they're naming their gods. Uh, we, we are often not thinking about money or the way others are thinking of me or my children or my spouse or, or my mountain biking or my hobby or whatever it is. We're often not thinking about those things that we can get excessively attached to that can be our idols, that can be our gods that are before him. We don't think of them as in the way as we might if we actually called them a god and gave them a name. So in a sense, the Israelites have integrity even in their idolatry that we sometimes don't have. The enemy is very skillful in deceiving us. So we're going to talk a little bit more about applying this uh, commandment in just a few moments. But what I want to do right now is just take a few minutes break an excursus, not a break, I'm not going to dismiss you, break from kind of where we're going and, and do a little uh, help in how we study the Bible and how we study the law and the commandments. And let me do this by showing you a commandment as we jump ahead to chapter 21. Uh, and we'll say this is from that section that I'll call the penal code. All right. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 17. And he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Now, we know intuitively we don't do this, right? We don't do this. None of us would be here, probably, right? I mean, if we went back all throughout time. Uh, we, we know intuitively that we don't put people who break the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother, uh, to death. But how do we come about knowing that we don't apply this commandment, and yet we apply this commandment in chapter 20? How do we get there? Have you thought through that? So I want to help you think through that a little bit. As we're reading the Old Testament, particularly as we're reading law, how do we discern whether this is something for us to apply? It's always profitable. It's always telling us something about God, but how do we, uh, how do, we do that? So we're going to look at a couple questions. But first, uh, the translators of the Net Bible, they write this, what the law of Israel revealed about God and his will is timeless and still authoritative over faith and conduct, but what the law regulated for Israel in their existence as the people of God, has been done away with in Christ. Okay, so the law was given to Israel, in a sense, as their penal code. That part has been done away with. Uh, We don't obey the law as Israel did. We obey those parts of the law that transcend that time period of, of salvation history. Romans tells us that Christ is the end or the goal of the law. So I want to give you three questions here. This is a little, uh, are you guys with me? You guys falling asleep? Okay. So three questions to help us as we uh, study the Old Testament, particularly the law. Number one, to whom was the passage originally written? This is an important question for us to ask, really whatever part of the Bible we're reading, but particularly if we're reading the Old Testament, we need to ask, uh, to whom was this passage originally written? Of course, here it's written to the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt. A second question is, is the passage repeated in the New Testament? Is this passage either verbatimly quoted or are the themes of this passage repeated in the New Testament? This is an important question to ask. Again, Romans tells us that Christ is the end or the goal of the law. And then a third question to ask is, is this specific application of this Old Testament law passage we're reading, is this specific application repealed in the New Testament? Is it done away with? And sometimes it is. 
This is true for all of the dietary rules and laws that are in the Old Testament. We won't get, go into it today, but in the New Testament, we find that those have been uh, repealed, as it were. So these three questions are important for us to ask as, as we're reading the Bible. And if we do this and apply it right now to this first commandment, shall have no other gods before me, uh, let, let's do that. This commandment is not verbatimly quoted in the New Testament, but the themes are there. Let me show you three passages that, um, that restate, if you will, this first commandment. The first one, of course, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is, this is one of our core things here at Cornerstone, loving God. We're not religious people. And that, that, that's more than a slogan. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. It's possible to be saturated with the word of God and not know the God of the word. That is possible. That is dangerous. We don't want that. And so this is one of the reasons that we want to emphasize here at Cornerstone what Jesus has emphasized, loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Uh, this in, in some ways repeats this first commandment. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So these, uh, this list here all has things that are sinful, things that are bad. But I want to suggest, and I think you already know this, that as Christians, most of the things that we're excessively t- attached to in the place of Jesus Christ are often or sometimes not evil things. They're, they're often good things. They're often great things. And this is addressed as well in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's writing. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is, this is a good passage. This is a passage that comes to my mind a lot. I've, I've referred to it before. Let me just, let's just uh, meditate and let me talk about this for a moment. Obviously, he's not saying that we should live, those of us who are married, as though we don't have wives. We, we, we shouldn't ignore them. That, that's not what the passage is saying. What the passage is saying, to paraphrase, is Paul knows that it's very easy for us as husbands and as wives to become excessively attached to our spouses and to put them up there before the Lord. And we can violate that first commandment and disobey that commandment by being excessively attached to our spouses. So what is the answer? The answer isn't we, okay, I need to love my spouse less. The, The answer is putting that love in its place and loving Jesus Christ with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So my love for my spouse is ordered, uh, ordered rightly. It's interesting that he then moves to mourning, uh, those who mourn as if they did not. That's a pretty bold statement. So we could, mourning could be an idol, Someone dies, we're expected to mourn. We're expected to grieve. But if you are excessively attached to that grief and that mourning, and so God is displaced, so God is pushed aside, so that grief is defining and directing who you are, you need to live as though you're not mourning. This says the same thing about happiness. 
Kind of crazy. Your stocks are up. Your portfolio's up. You've got a raise at work. Your kids are going in the right direction. They're all healthy. Life is good. The sprinklers didn't come on when, you're, when your uh, family members are visiting and, and everything's dialed in and you're happy and things are great. First Corinthians 7 says, don't live as though that is your God. It's good that you're happy. It's not saying we shouldn't be happy. It's not saying we shouldn't mourn. It's saying these things even we can be excessively attached to and live for. And so live as though you don't have them. As though, uh, as if they were not those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world. I love that broad expression there. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And I can't read that verse without thinking about Anybody, any parent relate to, uh, re- relate to this or, or the video uh, where, where kids just get engrossed in that machine, in that screen, and they are excessively attached to that thing? Well, no matter what it is, um, we are called to put that aside. So that's, uh, so that's the little uh, excursus I wanted to do about how we read uh, the Old Testament. I've referred to this passage several times says Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This kind of helps us see that it's right to read the Old Testament through the gospel, through the new covenant, through Christ, through the New Testament. Christ is both the end, it has ended, as well as the goal of the law, the law pointed to Christ. The uh, ESV study Bible uh, notes put it this way. They say end, uh, the the word there in Romans 10 probably includes the idea of both goal and termination. The Mosaic law has reached its goal in Christ. It looked forward to and anticipated him and the law is no longer binding upon Christians. The old covenant has ended in the sense that I was just talking about. There are components of the law that transcend that time period like the first commandment. Since Christ is the goal and the end of the law, righteousness belongs to all who trust in Christ. All right, well, we, um, we've covered uh, that God is a communicator, God is a liberator, uh, he's a lawgiver. I want to spend the last few minutes uh, that we're going to have together this morning uh, in the sermon uh, applying this passage in one particular area. And it's an area, I think, that every single one of us deals with. And the book of Proverbs calls this fear of man. Fear of man. And let me give you a definition of fear of man. Fear of man can be a god or an idol that we put uh, before God. The fear of man is a common spiritual condition when the significance of man is great and God is not. It's when some person that you admire, that you look up to, that you value their, their opinion, they become great in your life and God is not. Their opinion's great, God is not. Uh, continuing here with the definition, it's often caused by an unhealthy desire for affirmation or fear of rejection. Instead of finding our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he has made us by faith, we often look to others. We look to other people, people that we respect, people that we admire, and we want their affirmation or sometimes we just want them to not reject us or not point out those parts of our lives that we maybe 
um, are least comfortable with ourselves, and we want them not to point those, point those out to us. Final part of the definition here about fear of man. Fear of man can be accompanied by feelings of confidence or, or anxiety. You may not think that fear of man would, would uh, produce confidence, but, uh, but it can. I mean, I, uh, I don't know what it would be like to have the skills and talents of LeBron James, but you guys heard LeBron James is going back to Cleveland uh, this week. Uh, the whole uh, basketball world and all the sports fans were waiting to hear where he was going to go. And I would think uh, someone like LeBron James, if he's around people that admire him and affirm him and tell him, which is actually true, that he's probably the best basketball player on the planet, that his fear of man, the fact that he, like you and me, often falls into the temptation of wanting to be affirmed by others as a way to define who I am, which is an unhealthy desire, that that would breed confidence in him. It's going to breed confidence in him because he does have all these skills. He does have all these abilities. And he has all these people uh, affirming him. So fear of man can produce confidence, and it can also produce anxiety, and that's probably much more common and something that that we have experienced. So we obey this commandment by having no false gods, no excessive attachment to other people's opinions uh, of us. And this is, uh, this, is, this is a journey. This is a battle for, for many of us. Uh, how many of you uh, relate to what I'm talking about here? Fear of man. I mean, we, we all do. We all do. I'll share with you uh, a story, a confessional story of mine from uh, back when I was in seminary. And uh, we loved to come to California when we lived in Texas for three years. It was like the Egypt and this was like the promised land coming back because we love the outdoors and my wife's whole family is here. And so we cherished those times when we could come, come back to California. And we would extend our trips if we could. So if she could be here an extra day or two, then she would stay an extra day. Or if I could stay an extra day or two, she would stay an extra day. And then we'd fly back. And so this one particular occasion, uh, we're here, uh, and I flew back early. She stayed an extra few days. And I'm at the airport in Dallas waiting for her to come in. And uh, I'll never forget this moment. I'm, I'm there. And Chuck Swindoll, many of you have heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, he was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there. He's this prolific Christian author and preacher. And uh, up to this point, I hadn't actually met him or, or conversed with him. And he's there waiting for somebody to come in on the same plane. And so I'm like kind of excited, you know, here's... Chuck Swindoll. I mean, we don't have a pope, but this is like the closest thing we've got. And, uh, and, so, and so I walk over to, to talk with him, which is normally a very natural thing for me to do. Those of you that know me, I'll talk to anybody. But all of a sudden, uh, anxiety starts to come into me. And there's some stuff I was working through and some decisions that I was making or not making and wasn't sure about them. And I had such a high value of what he was going to say. I mean, this had nothing to do with him. The, the idols that we produce come, come from here, right? I mean, he's just a great guy. But I'm just all of a sudden just like coming to pieces and getting nervous talking with Chuck Swindoll there as we're waiting for an airplane. 
And it was a fear of man. And it was producing anxiety in me. And I want to close this morning because I think all of us, whether it breeds confidence, which is harder to discern, or whether uh, whether the byproduct is anxiety, which is easier to discern, I want to, to, to really just finish this morning, drive home into your hearts the good news of the gospel is that we can be completely freed from those kinds of anxieties or from the kind of pride and confidence when our identity is seen in Jesus Christ and his grace and his love and we are all different. And, and, and the freedom and the liberty that comes through the gospel that sets us free to be exactly who we are, not who we think we should be or who we think Chuck Swindoll might want us to be or if I'm not living up to those standards, the gospel sets us free. And it is the law of God that he has given and the gospel of God that he has given that sets us free can give us peace in our hearts so that we have peace not only with him, not only with one another, but we have peace reigning here. This is part of what God's will for us out of this first commandment. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you again that we have your word. We pray that we would be meditating on it more and more and more. We ask that we would be the kind of people where the word of God does not depart from our mouths because it is in our hearts, it is in our minds. Help us, God, to live as though we have been set free. Lord, we have a variety of of tendencies to be excessively attached, whether it's other people's opinions, fear of man, whether it's objects, whether it's electronics, whether it's sports, whether it's our spouses. Lord, we want to put all those things, all those good things in their place. We want to worship you. We want to love you. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that this week. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.